Asians, specifically Chinese, started becoming rich, right? And then that whole perception changed again. It's kind of like, you know, maybe like 15 years ago, if you walk on the street and you see maybe someone from mainland China, right? You might not be able to tell because I look extremely Chinese, but maybe like to the Chinese, we can kind of tell like the differences. Hey, that guy probably works in a canteen, right? But if you fast forward to today and you see like a Chinese walking in the street, you think, hey, that guy's probably rich, right? Yeah, so it's quite interesting to see like these like waves. But I think the main thing that the main learning, especially as a Singaporean, is like it's not about people, it's not about races anymore. Like it's about individuals. everybody. Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. I am your host, Roman Zelichenko, and today we are on episode 73, and we're going all the way to Singapore. Well, virtually. I'm here in New York, New York City, but our guest today is coming all the way from Singapore. Our guest today is uh, Jun Xian Li, who is the co-founder of Muvaz. And Muvaz is a basically a relocation technology company that helps companies, individuals with their relocations, everything from kind of visa and immigration stuff to, you know, the bulk of the relocation process. You know, it's interesting as an immigration lawyer, and I've talked about this many times on the show, as an immigration lawyer, you know, I was always focused on the visa side of things, right? You get the visa processed, the person is good, you know, and you don't think about what happens after. But again, I'll, I'll keep repeating this, but I think it's really important to say for our industry, so much of the immigration process is with the moving, the physical move of a person, their family, their goods, their dog, etc. And so I'm always really excited to hear about platforms and of course, the, the founders and the teams behind them who are uh, digitizing this whole effort. So I'm Roman Zelchenko, your host, former immigration lawyer myself, and now I'm the co-founder of Laborless, which is an immigration tech startup that automates H-1B visa compliance. Also the founder of GMI Rocket, which brings you this show and is a digital marketing agency for our industry as well. So without further ado, Jun Xian, thank you so much for being here and really excited for our conversation. And I know it's late in, in Singapore. So again, thank you for staying up and, and hanging out to, to talk. Hey, Ruben. Yeah, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so what time, So right now it's 11 o'clock because we're, we're recording this uh, live. It's 11 a.m. in Eastern. It's 10 p.m., you said, right, in, in Singapore? 11 p.m. It's 11 p.m. Oh, man. So we'll, we'll, keep this, we'll keep this brief so you can get some rest. We were talking a little bit before we went live. You're based in Singapore right now, which is this small but mighty country, right, in Asia that is growing like crazy. But as you were saying before, Singapore as a nation is really only about 50 years old. So it's a relatively, it's a very new country. Um, right. So can you share a little bit about kind of your background and maybe your family's background, you know, where you were from, like where, what, what was your start? Because obviously, if we go back before 50 years, there was no, you know, there was no Singapore as it is today. So it's really always interesting to see kind of the immigration story of folks who are in this industry. So yeah, what can you share about, you know, about your family's kind of immigration story? Thanks, Roman. I guess my family and I are of Chinese descent. Uh, if you look at like the Malay archipelago, yeah, we were formerly part of like, we were uh, formerly a part of the Republic of Malaysia. And then like, uh, you know, Malaysian, uh, Singapore basically gained independence uh, at that time uh, because like uh, the Chinese were the minority. Uh, so the, the, the majority race uh, in Malaysia uh, so they tend to be like uh, brown skin and uh, they speak uh, Bahasa Melayu. So uh, the Chinese, we were basically merchants that went there. So um, I guess like even to today, if you look at like uh, Malaysian politics, it still favors the 
uh, maybe the Malays, right? Uh, so it's like public knowledge. So uh, for Singapore specifically, like uh, the Chinese used to hang out in like a small island on the southern coast of Malaysia um, called Singapore. And um, yeah, and I, I think, I'm not sure what the official story is, but we were basically kicked out <laughs> of like Malaysia. And that's when our, our founding our prime minister, I don't know if you've heard of Lee Kuan Yew, uh, but yeah, he came about and then really, you know, got like, um, got the leaders together. And, you know, against all odds, you know, we have no resources, right? Uh, created modern Singapore. So, wow. yeah, yeah. So, um, I guess my family and I, uh, my dad was from Malaysia. So most of my childhood actually was in Malaysia. Uh, I grew up in like plantations. So with like, you know, with like chickens and like stray dogs and, uh, surrounded by, uh, rubber trees uh, so rubber tapping uh, this was before synthetic rubber was created but yeah so that's kind of like my childhood and then uh in my earlier uh, early years my family and i decided to then like permanently shift to singapore uh yeah and uh, my siblings and i got educated through the singaporean system uh our government made several very important strategic calls uh and you know using english as a medium of language was one of the main ones uh, and that has, you know, kept us, I guess, globally competitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think maybe just one other thing about, uh, you know, like growing up in Singapore, like uh, we are multicultural. So in Singapore, you, you know, you see like Indians, like Malays, uh, Chinese. We have Europeans, we have Eurasians. So, you know, like kind of like Europeans and Asians coming together because we were colonized uh, before. And, and it's, it's very natural for this to happen because it was just how we grew up with other people who look different. Um, maybe in one very real example, and uh, I, I've studied in the States, and yeah, and I, I guess that's why I've come to appreciate some things uh, that I should not take for granted. Like, if you go on a Sunday, right, and you, you can see your neighbor, one person coming out of a Muslim mosque, the other coming out of a Chinese temple, and uh, I'm Christian, so uh, coming off my church, and that's totally okay. It's the same street, and we go for lunch together, right? So, I, you know, it, it, it's... It, it may seem mundane, but yeah, like strangely, when I, I guess when I was like uh, spending time overseas, uh, yeah, I, I've grown to learn to not take this for granted. Hmm. Yeah, because I guess in many other parts of the world, folks who are, you know, different cultures or different faiths tend to be kind of in their own communities, which is great. But at the same time, you start to, you, you don't have that access daily to different types of people, yeah. and things like that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and I guess like one one thing I, I'm not sure what foreigners think about like the Singaporean government system. It might be a command economy. Uh, it might be um, to a certain degree autocratic. But you know, like uh, our housing systems, for example, almost mandate that within let's say a level, right, there'll be a certain ratio of Chinese to Malays to Indians. So you know, my neighbors certainly have Indian altars and pray to Indian gods, right? And every day I would smell you know like Malay curry. From my other neighbor, <laughs> so you know, like, it's like totally okay. It's just the way we grew up. It's interesting because that's one of the things I really love about growing up in New York City. Especially, I'm from Queens, and Queens is a very, very multicultural area. It yeah. still tends to be somewhat um, neighborhood based. So you know, you have little neighbor pockets of neighborhoods uh, where maybe a lot of folks are from Central America, and then other people are from South Asia, and then other people are from Eastern Europe and whatever, but it's very, very close together. So in the main streets and the, and the train stations and the restaurants, 
you have a mix of people and and yeah i i love that you know I, in my building for sure i walk in and one of the things i love about living in a building is you kind of never know what kind of food you're gonna smell every day you come home <laughs> from work or something and that's yeah. in the best possible way you know it gets you hungry so uh, that, that's really cool. And, and so what was it like kind of growing up? When did you move? How old were you when your family moved to, to uh, Singapore? So like uh, um, permanently when I was probably about six. Okay. Yeah. But uh, Singapore and Malaysia ain't that far away. So if you drive, right, like I don't know, from my hometown in Malaysia to maybe my home in Singapore, it's maybe a two and a half hour drive. Oh, wow. Yeah. So yeah. So we, during the weekends, we commute because like okay. a half of my family is still in Malaysia. But the other half is in Singapore. It's incredible. And do you is it is it difficult to cross the border, or it's fairly easy? It's it's really easy. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I, you know, like many people who live at least in the U.S. on the uh, Mexican U.S. border or the Canadian U.S. border, for many of them, they they work or or see family or friends across borders too. And sometimes it's more difficult. Sometimes it's easier. But yeah, it's uh, you know, in Europe, if you're in the Schengen zone, they don't even. There's very often not even a check. You just enter another country. Right. Um, so that that's really cool. And, and what was it? What was it like? I mean, you kind of have mentioned. You'd mentioned to me that really Singapore uh, as an economy has really exploded over the past you know, fifty years. Uh, and and we all know that it's one of the most powerful passports in the world. And yeah. many many countries have their headquarters or at least their regional headquarters in, in Singapore and uh, etc. What was it like to kind of I don't know. What did you see as that transition? How did that, you know, how did, how did it, how was it growing up there for you during this period of kind of upward transition? So, um, I've actually seen, I, I don't know, like, uh, it's a good question. I'm just thinking kind of like, like, like reflecting, like we actually saw different phases. So Singapore's population, uh, it's only about 5 million, but we used to be 2 million, right. And then 3 million. And so, um, Population growth was a very, I guess, like key and strategic driver of our economy, right? That's how you increase productivity, right? Or production, right? Just increase the number of humans, right? <laughs> so um, that was like the initial push. Um, I'll say the earlier years, um, uh, we saw a lot of Caucasians actually uh, coming. So a lot of British, a lot of French, uh, to a certain extent, like American companies as well, coming mm-hmm. to our area and setting up regional headquarters, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so if you look at like, I guess like the the neighborhood composition, uh, there was like that that initial phase whereby there were a lot of uh, foreign talent coming in, uh, bringing you know like um, bringing like like technology, bringing like best practices, and you know we were just a swamp, right? So that was like an initial phase, and then like I I I think maybe just maybe ten years ago, we started seeing people from South Asia coming in, and that was because Singapore started becoming I guess like rich. Right. And therefore, like the services market and the construction market started booming. Mm. And therefore, we had like uh, Chinese people from mainland China and like uh, Indians from India coming in to, uh, to fill the services sector. Yeah. But uh, these, uh, I guess, like this, this group of people, they were, they were doing like the blue collar work. Right. So the impression we had, I, I guess, Singaporeans had um, of like maybe Caucasians in the beginning, they're like, you know, the colonial masters. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like uh, they, they tend to hang out somewhere, they drink wine, you know. So that's kind of like the impression I have of my childhood. Mm-hmm. And then like, um, and then I guess that once again, like we, we got a little bit wealthy and then other Asians started coming in, mm-hmm. right? And then they were the blue collar workers. So, you know, that, that, that dynamic changed. And then maybe like more recently, like Asians, specifically Chinese, started becoming rich, right? And then 
that whole perception changed again. It's kind of like, you know, maybe like 15 years ago, if you walk on the street and you see maybe someone from mainland China, right? Uh, you might not be able to tell because I look extremely Chinese, but maybe like to the Chinese, we can kind of tell like the differences. Hey, that guy probably works in a canteen, right? But if you fast forward to today and you see like a Chinese working in the street, you think, hey, that guy's probably rich, right? Yeah, so it's quite interesting to see like these like waves. But I think the main thing that the main learning, especially as a Singaporean, is like, it's not about people. It's not about races anymore. Like it's about individuals. Yeah, so really like there's very little racial lens because, you know, we use kind of like the... The, the guys up tops used to be Caucasian, right? But the, the guys up tops now are like Chinese. So, it, you know, that we just don't take these things for granted anymore, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there, there's no fixed race. There's no like set bias, right? Mm-hmm. Against the race that we are looking at. And I, think, I do believe that's the beauty of global mobility. Yeah, it's incredible. And especially because it's so quick that these changes, like you said, are so rapid within your lifetime. And even within a relatively short period of your lifetime, their, your surroundings force you to change your your biases. You know, we all have bias. We're humans. Like we we see something, we make an assumption, and then we push that assumption onto other people. It's just right. it's natural, and it's really hard to get away from that. It's probably easier, maybe in a way, if you see it changing in front of your eyes constantly. Which yeah. you're right is is really cool. I mean, once you see that happen, my hope would be that people are like, well, there's no you know, there's no better or worse people or race or nation it's just mm-hmm. you know and you which is really yeah it's really wonderful i mean not that this show is about that but as you may know uh, i think in america especially right now there's just been such a big discussion around racial disparity and people learning or unlearning things that they've sort of been associated with but it's harder in a big country because unless you're in a city like new york or san francisco where you see this happening you live in a in a place that you don't see m- many people as easily from other parts of the world, and so those changes are maybe slower. So yeah, it's really cool to to see that that difference. So so you studied, uh, you know, you studied in in Singapore. I know that you got your MBA as well um, from Fudan University. I just you know I saw that from your LinkedIn. Is that uh, is that based was that based in China? So you went to China to study, or is that in in Singapore? Uh, uh, they have a campus. Okay, right. Yeah. So I've actually also studied in Boston. Uh, I, I did like a Master of Economics and Finance in, in Boston. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, then I went and do my MBA uh, in China. Okay. Uh, during my undergraduate days, I did an exchange in Vienna. So yeah, just kind of like, you know, trying wow. to get the feels, right? Of like, you know, what is like European education? And you know, how, how do the guys on the streets talk, right? What, what do they yeah. care about? Yeah, the same thing about like maybe like uh, in America and same thing. And then in China. So, yeah, and then, you know, getting that lens, right, to really kind of like maybe understand uh, what is and what's not. Did, did you find a big, uh, a major difference? I mean, you studied economic. I studied economics in undergraduate and then I, I went to law school, of course. But then I, you know, did you find uh, a difference in the way that you studied in mm. in, in Boston versus in China? Um, yeah. Like, were there differences there that were, you know, apparent to you? Uh, certainly. Uh, so, like, uh, so maybe in, in, in Harvard, right? Like, uh, so we we study Keynesian economics, right? So, I mean, it, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking how sensitive this is, but like, okay, like, but uh, regardless, right? Like, uh, uh, so my professor was saying, like, hey, you know, like this is like Keynesian economics, so uh, most societies kind of like, like, uh, you know, we we, we abide by or prescribe to it, right? But not the Chinese, right? Because they are like common economy. Okay, interesting. And then I go to China. And we are studying the same Keynesian economics, right? And, you know, the other view is like, hey, like, 
Um, this is Keynesian economics, right? And uh, this is like maybe the, the parts that works really well. And, you know, it explains a lot. But these are the parts that maybe, you know, we feel that um, we can maybe like value add or, or tweak specific to our culture, right? And uh, our society and our belief systems. Hmm. So like, it's it's interesting because it's actually the same coin, but you, you see both sides of it, right? Uh, and yeah, it's it's really the same coin, right? It's Keynesian economics that doesn't change, yeah, but just different interpretations of it. Um, and and yeah. it's 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 also really cool that you were saying, you know, the idea is well, let's fit this economic model or the way that our society works into our culture, uh, yeah. in, instead of forcing the culture to change around, you know, some prescribed economic norms, which I think is really cool. I mean, yeah, I. I I think it's great to have culture have such a, a have such importance, you know, um, because it part of and this is, again, a totally different discussion. Um, but I think sometimes, especially in America, it feels and I grew up here. Right. So I substantively, I don't know much more, but it does feel very often that the way our economy, uh, the direction our economy goes, forces our 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 society to shift. You know, and like, I think there's really be there's beauty in that because it that means that there's no there's going to be no stop to economic growth and not even growth in the numbers wise, but like exploration, creativity, like I'm not going to not create a company because I'm afraid of how it will culturally impact. It's like I'll create it if people go to it. Great. If people don't go to it because our culture is too strong, then the, the company is not going to work. I think that's really so. But I, I see the, the benefit to both. So it's really interesting. Um, and, and is there a reason that you went into, I mean, again, you studied economics and finance in, in America, then you went, got your MBA. Is there a reason that you were going in this sort of like finance business direction? I mean, you grew up, you said, in a, in a, in a, on, a, on a plantation, you were making rubber. I mean, rubber... If you were starting a rubber company, I would say this is perfectly aligned with what you grew up knowing and seeing. So, like, right. what was there? What was there about these, uh, um, you know, about this profession or about this industry, the financial and uh, finance and business? What about that was interesting to you? Honestly, like, I think like it, it picked me. Right, <laughs> I picked it. Uh, yeah. So, no, as a socially responsible son. Uh, to like Asian parents, I, I don't, I'm not sure if you watch Jimmy Chen, but like, yeah, it's 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 accurate to to a good degree. Yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, I mean, the, the the key driver of the economy was, I mean, there there were a lot of businesses in Singapore, right? So uh, I have a general degree, and then I ended up specializing in finance. So like, uh, yeah, it's it's basically where the jobs were, and you know, if if you graduate and you know if you become a banker, you become a doctor, you become a lawyer, then you know, you are like a filial son. So it's, it's a little bit of societal expectation. Uh, but it, it's also because, I guess, you know, like, um, I would say that maybe my my parents, uh, my family, we were from humble, like, uh, we're from, from fairly humble backgrounds. So, you know, understandably that, you know, putting food on the table and being uh, in a good profession was deemed as socially responsible, right? Uh, times have since changed. But yeah, that, that I, I, I do suspect that maybe for me, like, that I just kind of like didn't think too much about it, right? Just kind of like stay the course, uh, study hard. Uh, these are kind of like the, the, the good causes. These are the good jobs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, so I graduated and then, uh, actually after, after working in a financial institution, like, uh, uh, I, I chose to work in a nonprofit organization. 
Because like, you know, do something is all about money and do something is not about money. And, you know, it's like A-B testing, right? Theoretically, yeah. I as an individual must lie somewhere in between. Right? So the question right. is like, where? Is it 60-40? Is it 70-30? Yeah, because I, I think I was given a good education. I'm pretty confident that I can do most jobs or I can pick it up, right? Then the question beckons, you know, if you can do everything, what will you do? And there's that, you know, that paradox of choice, right? That paralyzes you sometimes. So yeah, I was just trying to figure myself out. Yeah. So I want to dive into what was that first job that you got uh, out of out of school? Right. You studied, you got your, your, your master's of finance and economics here. You went to get your MBA. And then afterwards, I guess, was that all kind of your school to school to school? Or did you take breaks in between? I'm just sort of trying to understand the timeline of you know, yeah. your, your professional career in the beginning there. So I, I graduated like a, a general degree in business, uh, like with, uh, with finance skills, right? Uh, so I graduated, I, I did marketing for a while. So like a bit of a jack of all trades. So I did marketing with the university. Oh, I graduated into the great financial crisis, by the way. Mm. So uh, that's like 2008, not, not a good time for finance, I would say. And then worked in a financial institution, uh, did front office work. Then went to do nonprofit work. Uh, that was, so it was, it was a nonprofit organization based out of BC. Uh, but I was working in the regional branch in Singapore. Uh, but yeah, but involved a lot of travel. So taking a lot of best practices, um, from like uh, associations and, 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 uh, education institutions in America and trying to spread that, I guess, the sophistication into Southeast Asia, right? So yeah. Uh, and then I went to do, uh, I went to study, uh, primarily because I, I think I was still trying to figure things out. Yeah. I, I could do the work, but you know, something didn't click. Uh, it clicked in China, right? I saw technology like really booming, right? So, and, and this was like, this was technically like maybe an unsophisticated country, right? At, at that time, this was just 10 years ago. I can give you an example of what happened and, and this like blew my, my mind. So like, um, my classmates in China were kind of like withdrawing all their money from their bank and putting it into WeChat. Right. Which to me is preposterous, right? It's like asking like maybe Roman, like, you know, like draw all your money out of like Chase, right? And put it into WhatsApp. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel natural. So, but lo and behold, an entire country doing that. And I, I think that, that, that really like shook me and maybe it alerted me to something fundamental that was happening, right? People trust and place maybe a higher degree of moral responsibility, uh, on the large tech companies than they do on the government. Right. I'm not Chinese, right? Where I put my money is where I put my allegiance, right? So it's, you know, it's, 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 it's my, my, my comfort and, you know, it's, it's, it's my foundation, right? So, um, yeah, but, you know, lo and behold, they are placed technology company, right? That, I don't know. I, I, I'm not sure about you, but, you know, maybe some Americans might hold like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk to a higher degree of more responsibility than they do like Donald Trump, right? So, and this, this could not be, you know, coming from Singapore, this is very weird to see because we really trust our government, right? Especially in Asia, right? We have like countries like 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 Vietnam, communist, right? Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like my context, right? So that, that was like very very like surprising to see, and I think maybe that that just announced that like technology has arrived, right? And it will never go back. Uh, yeah. So after after my MBA, uh, I came back to Singapore and I I became a Kind of applied for the only job I could. Uh, I became a venture capitalist. Uh, yeah, you know, it's kind of like where finance meets like tech, right? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, I was a VC with a, an, actually a, um, an organization that's listed in the New York Stock Exchange. Okay. Uh, group. Yeah. Uh, yes. So that kickstarted, like, I guess my, my journey and understanding into technology. So, so this, the, so this is C group, right? C group ventures. So uh, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? I, you know, and, and I'm almost also curious about it because I came, you know, from a kind of a, an economics and finance background, went into the legal space and then just started to learn about technology when I became a lawyer, uh, you know, more about the, the sort of the VC world and the, the startup world, you know, what, what was it like for you to, to get into that space and sort of what are the, what are, what are some of the things that you maybe took away from it because we'll get to to move us really soon but obviously you know you guys uh you've raised some funding you know but so that means you've been on both sides now Not so right. what were some of the things that you were learning as you went into this world that combined economics with kind of the growing technology sector right i think fundamentally like yeah being able to see both sides of the coin and uh, being able to understand what value creation means you know to, to both parties right so you can structure something that's win-win Right, you know, like everyone wins. So uh, finding that balance, I think, is key. Uh, when for us, fundraising is like finding a partner, right? So if the value proposition makes sense to both sides, then a deal can be done. Yeah. So uh, I, I think uh, starting out from venture capital helped me, really gave me like a fairly good handle on the commercial value of technology, hmm. right? And there is a science behind it, right? It can be calculated, but it is fairly specific to high growth technology companies, like. Right, this might not hold water for like Walgreens, right? You can't use that model. So, uh, yeah, so I think mathematically understanding what that equation looks like for it to make sense to a venture capitalist that, you know, has a 10 year fund life, right? Uh, and then understanding at what rate of growth does, you know, the accompanying startup have to grow at, right? So that this model can make sense to all parties uh, was important. Uh, yeah, so I think, yeah, it, it really helps to be able to understand like the math on both sides. And I also feel like, and maybe this is not true, but I, I think about it from the perspective of a startup founder, you know, having a conversation with venture capitalists and, you know, with some VC firms, if they don't intrinsically need, know the, the the motivations of a VC firm or, or like how they view, uh, you know, growth or success for them, I feel like it's harder to pitch your company. You know, it's easier to sit down and say, listen, I know what you need. I've been on your side. So here's how what we have as a company fits what you need, you know, but then to your point, it's a partnership. So you also want to say, well, what kind of VC firm are you? What are your terms? What are you going to give me? Is it just money? Or is there a a network or a mentorship or specialization? Uh, And and I, I feel like, you know, I feel like there's a lot to be unpacked there. So it sounds like having that experience for you is really helpful eventually, um, because I know that after that you, I guess you know, and, and again, I'm I'm sort of basing this off of your your LinkedIn profile, but then you actually went to go on and co-found um, a, a technology company, right? right. Uh, can Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it, it so it's called it looks like it's called Shield uh, initially. Yeah. It was called Cash Shield. So right. you're this this sounds like uh, a perfect culmination of your life in technology and in finance and in venture. Um, you know, what, what motivated you to start that company and go from being a quote unquote, as you said, maybe socially responsible, you know, child of an immigrant that has a good predictable job to now doing one of the hardest things imaginable, which is starting a company. So like what motivated you to, to do that that first time? Uh, so 
I, I do believe that, uh, and this, this is just, just uh, as an individual, like um, there's always going to be an entrepreneur need. Uh, during my undergraduate days, like even till today, like uh, my very first business was actually to open like a cafe. So wow. yeah, uh, so my partner and I actually till today, we still have like a small chain of cafes. So so I guess entrepreneurship or yeah, has always kind of like been in me, you know, tr- just trying to figure out risk versus reward, right? But mm-hmm. I do believe that I made some silly decisions when I was younger, right? Maybe like too much testosterone or I, I'm not sure, but yeah, I wouldn't make the same decision now, but I, I'm thankful that some most of them worked out. Uh, yeah, but basically, I, I do believe that there's always kind of like being an entrepreneur in me. So um, maybe as an individual, I think the earlier years were a little bit of a struggle because I, I'm inherently a jack of all trades. And I do believe I am more useful as a strategic thinker. That's more broad based, right? A bit more macro, a bit more general. But as a young professional, you are kind of like required to really just grind through things. You, you don't you don't go to the strategy department immediately, right? You kind of like you you kind of like work your way into that role, right? And maybe when you're 30, you know, you've you've earned your stripes, then you know, here like here's a strategic role. So yeah, I think the earlier years were awkward for me, but I, I did my best to kind of do the job. And um yeah, and then I, I think when I maybe hit 30, with enough savings, with enough like confidence, I came out to kind of like uh, be a startup entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I think that's kind of like your dynamics that no, that was like going on. How old were you? Just curious when you started that first business, this like cafe. I mean, that sounds like a, not an easy business to get into. You know, right, yeah. you real estate, you got to, you have a supply chain of things. You got to buy cups and I don't know how, how to, that's, that's crazy. That's awesome. Yeah. Um. So in Singapore, uh, I was like 20, oh, wait, let me, 23 or 24. Uh, in Singapore, we, we, we serve uh, the army. It's mandatory. Uh, we do have a conscript army. So we tend to be two years behind, like maybe my, my, my American like classmates. So yeah. So probably when I'm 23 or 24, uh, we go to the army typically when we are 17 mm-hmm. to 18 and then 19, we, we, we enter university. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's really, uh, that's really cool. Do you think, um, out of curiosity, do you think the fact that you had the experience of building a cafe, did that give you more confidence to try to build your first, like, you know, let's just call it more high risk, perhaps? Although I think probably cafe potentially is more high it's risk, high right? Because right? you, you got to invest in all this stuff. Uh, but do you think there was some, you know, was there some overlap of skills or lessons or things from there to when you first started building sort of more tech based companies? Yeah, uh, and honestly, like I, I do feel that the biggest, uh, maybe like development I got uh, through the experience was so we, we have we've opened many cafes, uh, and we've closed many cafes, mm-hmm. right? And some were more painful than the other. Uh, so yeah, I remember like there, there was this like we we had like a Japanese restaurant, and some some of my colleagues uh, uh some of my colleagues actually my classmates uh, from before they would uh, know, yeah, like uh it was like hemorrhaging money. Right. And uh, that was the, the money anxiety was real. Right. So, uh, we fell into like a very, very low state and really had to learn how to kind of like drag yourself out of that. Right. So uh, that builds character, right. On hindsight, it's easy to say, but I, I do think that that was kind of like one of the main things where I, I, I do understand what uh, will break me and I'm very, very sure what wouldn't. Right. And that brings to me a certain degree of peace uh, in my everyday work. Right. I'm, I'm okay if it doesn't work out, but I will always kind of like put my best foot forward. 
So, uh, yeah. So, you know, understanding the things that are within your control and you should be responsible for in terms of outcomes and the things that are not, right? Yeah. So I, I do think that was like the, oh, the, the biggest takeaway, uh, for like maybe like a traditional business, right? Uh, I can only share that the PNL is entirely different uh, right. from like a tech company. Yeah. But subsequently, when I like, uh, I, I guess I started evaluating tech companies, having run a cafe before, it was very apparent how different like the projections are. Yeah. Uh, just fundamentally, right? Like talking about like costings, right? Like even uh, was um, from like, let's say a, a cafe, right? Which is like profit driven, right? Uh, from, uh, you know, like a, maybe a venture backable, uh, like startup that is growth driven. Like why, right? What's the difference and where is value created? How is value, you know, like calculated? It gave me like an additional benefit of being able to compare the differences in business model and, and why it's different. Can you talk just very briefly about Shield? Because it looks like yeah. you were going, you know, in TechCrunch, you raised, you raised a bunch of funding, et cetera. What was the sort of, the premise maybe behind the company and, and how did you come to, to, to launch it? So the company was actually first launched by my, my, like my friend, I think. Yeah. We, we went to the same like secondary school. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So actually like what happened was that uh, he, he had already started this idea and he was trying uh, to kind of like launch it, but it was probably, it, it was, it was doing very moderate success, right? Let's call it for, for a long time. And then, and we were always chatting. And, you know, I was sharing with him, like, maybe, like, what we were doing. And uh, at that time, I was operating Shopee. Uh, so under C Group, there's a very large e-commerce company called Shopee, right? So mm. a bunch of guys and I, we were in charge of, like, launching the entire project, right? Wow. So, uh, yeah, so that, that was really good experience because, like, I just learned from really, really good people, very good growth-centric people, right? Uh, but, okay, so, yeah, so I was sharing this experience with him and, um, my, 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 my co-founder, uh, he was, uh, he, he was more like from a more traditional business background, right? Uh, and so one day he finally decided, right, that, hey, like, you know, let's, let's change this, right? Because he, he wasn't sure where this was going. And, and, and therefore, like, we, you know, uh, the previous company was called Cash Run. And, uh, and then, you know, we took like a product that we knew had, uh, the security product, basically, that we knew had legs, right? And, uh, formed like a new, uh, business model, uh, wow. and then like started launching that into the global markets, uh, and, and fundraising based on that. So yeah, my job was like, uh, so my, my, my partner was like, uh, he was like more of a CEO, CPO kind of person. And I was more of a CFO, COO kind of mm-hmm. person. Yeah. So yeah. And, uh, we, I guess like, uh, oh, interesting story regarding Shield. Okay. So Shield's a very, it's a very difficult name to SEO for, right? If you right. wish, the Avengers is going to come up. But anyway, <laughs> but uh, regardless, right? Um, we, we are B two B, so that, that that's uh, off like maybe a low degree of importance. But uh, yeah, we were. I, I think maybe just two parts. Like the first thing is like product. Uh, we were finance people. Uh, most of the solutions in the market, and we did not appreciate this in the beginning. Like uh, they were built by engineers, right? So you know, like, let's write rules to really like weed out fraud, right? So, hey, like if Roman's IP address uh, using from the credit card to swiping is like in America, like now, and then like one hour later, you know, they see the same credit card being swiped in Singapore, something's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. So that's like a rule. So, you know, like most of like the, I guess the, the security systems were created based on rules, right? Yeah, but for us, like, you know, we're finance people, risk is return, 
right? Risk is not something you minimize. Risk is something you optimize, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like if you tell me that like, I can take like venture capital, right? It's high risk, high return, right? It it can work. So mm-hmm. yeah, just you know that this is the this these are the ratios, right? Involved. So yeah, so the shield algorithm was actually written with finance as the background, right? And there were and because that was like the fundamental of it, everything else was different, right? The algorithms were like high frequency trading, like modules. It's not about histor it's not about value investing, right? It's not about historicals. It's about what was the trade that happened two seconds ago and what were the volumes? Mm-hmm. And that should predict the next second. So yeah, we were a security system that did not require historical data mm-hmm. because the algorithms were written with finance in mind and wow. risk optimization. So I mean we didn't know, but because it was just our background and that's just naturally how we wrote it. Yeah, but lo and behold, no one in the world saw like like security that way. Uh, so yeah, so um, uh, Alibaba became a client uh, in in America. We're working with quite a few, you know, of the larger like companies, including Razer. Mm-hmm. Like in Europe, we're working with some of the telcos like T-Mobile and Vodafone. And wow. yeah, so that that that, that was like exciting. Uh, yeah, so that taught us a lesson about product, right? Like you know that each one of us is unique, right? But we to embrace your uniqueness and let that manifest in in terms of a product. You never know, right? But, you know, once again, right, you should let the product and your business be the best representation of yourself, right? Uh, and yeah, and, and um, for me, that, that, that worked out okay. Wow, that's such a great, that's such an interesting lesson. It also goes to show that you shouldn't take for granted the, inf- the knowledge that you have and assume that everyone already knows it or that other, you know, tools or solutions are built with that in mind. There's always the first. It doesn't mean that you created this idea or this concept it just means that you took your idea and concept which had a finance background and turned it into a technology product which at the time obviously that that just sort of didn't exist um from from that perspective which is you know it's really cool i think it's also a nice um reminder from an innovation standpoint that innovation is never going to be a hundred percent new it's going to be maybe 15 percent new and the other 85 percent is based on some culmination of existing information that you put together in a maybe different or unique kind of way um what so so you were there until 2018 it does the company still the company still uh, around at this point uh the company is doing really well nice. uh, so yeah it's a it's a uh, maybe it's a good segue into Movas. Like, uh, it yeah. was actually like, commercially a bad decision uh, to step down from a, a CFO role of like um, a, a very well and decently valued company. So, uh, I mean, our latest round, you know, we're invested by Tomasic. Uh, Tomasic is like the sovereign wealth fund of Singapore. Uh, wow. Yeah, so it's yeah, it's it's in a, it's in a good place. Yeah, That's but awesome. uh, yeah, but uh, I guess like. I think maybe two things like uh, inherently I, I do believe I am a zero to one guy. I, I'm the most useful uh, in problem solving and really like building things up. Right. Uh, I do believe that that's maybe the, 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 the core value I can bring to the people around me in the society I, I, I serve. So yeah, like uh, with that in mind, like uh, a bunch of guys, actually like my, my classmates, uh, they were actually like subcontractors for a moving company. And they were doing it for about five years. So these are my classmates, right? Like, um, and uh, they were just thinking, like, hey, like, why isn't there any technology 
and moving where there's, you know, in Singapore, you know, we have, we have the usual apps and we have the iPhone and all that, right? So everywhere else there's technology, but why is like this industry like lagging, right? So, uh, so we had conversations about, you know, what is the opportunity, right? There's a gap, yes, but is, is that gap an opportunity, right? Or that gap is just like a problem that cannot be solved with technology. Uh, so yeah, we went about sizing the market, uh, trying to understand like, uh, for example, if you look at Relo Tech, Real tech's representation in maybe the entire relocation market is only 0.1%, which is, it cannot be, right? It's only one of two conclusions can draw from that. Number one, there's no role for technology to play, mm-hmm. uh, which cannot be, right? Technology has a role to play in everything now. Uh, or number two, right? Whatever manifestation of technology that exists cannot correctly or sufficiently address the needs of the market, right? So, yeah. So, you know, if you're at 0.1, bring it to 10%. So if you look at right hailing, right, right hailing is 33%. If you look in America, e-commerce, right, is probably about 17% of retail. So yeah, uh, there is a 100x growth opportunity, right? Bringing 0.1% to 10% is 100x, but there definitely isn't a 100x growth for right hailing or uh, 2x growth at most for right hailing, right? So to a VC, that's exciting, right? But that's also risky, but that's also exciting. What about the industry? So, and I guess I'm going to ask you: Did did you have personal experience moving? Maybe for I get you obviously moved first as a student, so you relocated to the U.S. for I guess what two years or so uh, on a student visa, um, and then you worked I guess in the U.S. So you probably had some sort of a, a work visa or something like that when you were at the nonprofit. So you went through the relocation process there. You went to China, which I guess is a bit closer, but nevertheless, it's a move. You're you're in a different country. Etc. Did you ever also have to relocate for work? You know, maybe with the with the mm-hmm. VC firm. Did you have to do any assignments or projects internationally where they sent you on a professional uh, move? Uh, so I, I was actually just chatting with like the guys earlier about this. Like, um, okay, I'm gonna okay, uh, I'm gonna deliver this in a measured way. But like, uh, so uh, like maybe like if you look at when I was when I was doing e-commerce at C Group. Right. Uh, in a year, maybe like out of 12 months, nine months, I'm not in Singapore. Right. Wow. Uh, but I, I feel like, you know, visa policies are actually probably in a little bit of an unstable state. Right. So in certain countries, right, you know, where maybe work visas were a little bit more forthcoming to apply for, I did have a work visa. But anyways, I'm like two weeks in this country, two weeks in the next country, two weeks in the next country. So you know, maybe it's a tourist visa. I don't know, right? In some countries, tourist visas like 30 days. In some countries, it's 90 days. And, you know, like, so it's, but I am traveling for work. So, yeah, I, I do think that, you know, it's going to come to like a certain confluence, right? Whereby, you know, like, um, we need to rethink the way we look at short-term visa versus long-term visa, right? Yeah, it's not categorized correctly, I think, uh, in today's, in the modern age of business, especially with digital nomads, you know, especially with like, you know, like remote working, Right. It's, it's not so relevant anymore. Yeah, so I guess like in some countries, I did have a work visa. <laughs> in some countries, I maybe I technically did not require a work visa because I did not have to stay there permanently for an extended period. Mm-hmm. Right. I can you know be a little bit more nomadic about the way we look at it. And yeah, so, I mean, right. and let's be honest. I mean, how many people work as digital nomads around the world? They open up their laptop, they go to a cafe and they run their marketing agency, their YouTube channel, their Facebook, their Instagram account, you know, whatever it might be, and they're monetizing. Um, and, and, you know, look, it's one of those things where technology, consumer technology has far outpaced 
the regulations and laws, especially internationally. And I think that's normal. It's really hard to change a law. It's very easy to launch an app, comparatively speaking. Uh, and so it, it definitely, it certainly makes sense. Obviously, as a lawyer, what our job is, is to inform our clients or the world, the industry more generally, here's what you should or shouldn't do. Here's how you can maybe get away with this. Or here's like what you definitely should stay away from. But the idea is that you, you traveled a lot for work. So when your friends that were, you know, subcontracting in the moving industry started talking about the lack of technology in the space, was there any part of you that was like, yeah, wait a minute. Now that I recall all of the moves that I did as a student for work, et cetera, it could have been better. Or, or was there no connection like that? No, 100%. That was a, I, I totally related to it. So like, I mean, like just in China, right? Like, um, maybe just even in China, like the student visa, like, uh, I had to go to the school and then after going to school, like, uh, everything's in Chinese, right? But so, uh, and I, I, I'm maybe like, uh, my first language is probably English, but I am, I'm fluent with Chinese, right? But, you know, business Chinese is, is different level, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So everything's in Chinese and then like, you know, uh, and there were no instructions or, or maybe there were instructions. I couldn't find it. I'm not sure, but. Yeah, the, no, just like walking around campus, asking random people, like, which building do I go to? So in China, I had to go to this building. I have to use their photographer, take this photo, and then like bring it to the next, another building, another random building. And they issue this little red book. So it, the little red book does exist, right? Very communistic, but okay. So take that little red book, go to like the police station down the street, and then like get this stamp. And if you get this stamp, they're going to give you this sheet. And then take that sheet, go to like, you know, like three stations down, right? Like, and uh, wow. go to the embassy and queue up. So, yeah, I mean, like, I, I do think that there could be a better user experience. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, I, I'm sure there are like 1,000 people exactly like me, right? So, uh, yeah, like, uh, so, uh, the awkwardness in something so simple, it is just admin, right? It's just paperwork. So, it doesn't have to be that way. And maybe, like, it could be digitalized. Maybe... Mm-hmm. It just has to be standardized, you know, so everyone, you know, as long as the instructions are clear, right? Uh, so yeah, um, so yeah, definitely like felt the awkwardness in like, in multiple ways. And so, so I guess this is a really good way to transition to, to move us. Um, so what does the company do? T- tell me and, and everyone listening about the company. Uh, uh, you know, what does it do? You know, what problem does it solve? And I guess for whom? Is it people? Is it individuals? Is it companies? Uh, yeah. Or both maybe? Yeah, uh, it's for companies. So we are B2B to C. So, uh, Move is a technology company and we provide relocation management software basically for relocators and their families like globally. Uh, so we have a platform. So we, we do have like a partner platform and we have like an end user platform. So, uh, platforms are equipped with like, uh, like tooling, uh, that I guess like what we really want to do is like bring the joy out of moving and, you know, in the process reduce uncertainty and stress rate. So we feel that with every move, actually, there's that sense of like adventure, right? But then it gets bogged down by all that friction. And suddenly you start thinking about, you know, God, like, how am I going to, how am I going to like settle this, this thing? Right. So, and then, you know, that, 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 you know, like that joy meter just like goes all the way down. Right. So we, we really want to bring out that joy. So accentuate the joy and use the uncertainty and stress. Uh, we work with relocation service providers, uh, like visa and immigration service providers, uh, moving companies, pet relocation companies. Sometimes like cleaning companies, right? So as long as you, you know, like, uh, uh, you're in the, the business of either servicing expats 
or like in the business of relocation, you're a partner uh, like for us. Uh, we do three things. Uh, we provide a leading uh, software, so CRMs for uh, our partners. We help them improve like customer satisfaction levels and we help our partners increase revenue. So we do have a fairly unique uh, business approach to relocation. So it's not just innovation from a technical perspective. I think fundamentally it's rethinking, right? What is a, what is a Uber model? For the entire relocation project look like and how does how is commercial value created right so yeah we do have a fairly unique approach to that uh so yeah we, we work with people like like you roman uh like labelists do you work with companies in-house teams because many large organizations have in-house mobility immigration teams who almost yeah. function like their own little you know rmc or, or or what have you so do you also support them as your clients or as partners mm-hmm. uh, we do uh, in fact, like, uh, yeah, and uh, so let's say, like, uh, so one of the, like, our uh, people, um, one of maybe, I wouldn't call it clients, but people who work with, like, uh, um, like previously, like, uh, with their, their, their employees or their corporate assignees, right, like, like Accenture. So, um, you know, the, the, the senior level guys would tend to have, like, you know, uh, they tend to have, like, assistants or a secretary, and it tends to be, like, the full service, right? Oh, in fact, like uh, yeah, Danielle, my, my, my colleague, was just sharing that uh, Serva and BGRS, they just merged. So uh, interesting, right? And, you know, they are like the, the large RMCs, right? That service may be the, 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 the top guns, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we feel there's, there's everyone else. There's like the junior mid stuff, right? Junior mid stuff. And maybe they are self-initiated. They, yeah, they are on a lump sum, you know, they, they're on a two-year local plus contract, right? So... Uh, the HR departments work with us uh, to recommend like our platforms, right? Uh, for the areas that they don't cover, so in-house mobility departments, for example, could help with like visa application, but everything else, you know, you might have to manage in your own. So uh, they work with us uh, to kind of like uh, to to help like that entire process like, for the employees. So okay, so if I'm, I just I'm, I want to go through an example if I can, maybe for myself and and perhaps for others. So you have these clients that are maybe uh, in-house mobility teams. Do you also have a network of partners who fulfill some of these services? So if I'm large corp X Y Z based out of San Francisco, and okay, fine, the, the senior level people white glove service, everything's going to be done for them. But the, right. you know, the junior and sometimes even the entry level employees, you know, relatively a few years of working who want to do a six year assignment somewhere for the, the fun of it, they're single, they want to live in Paris, you know, whatever. And so would it make sense for the in-house team to use move us? And then if they do, okay, they have an immigration supplier, on, you know, a lawyer, a law firm or whatever on the ground. But then to your point, the person wants to move their dog, and then they also want to find a home and all that. Did they do that all through your platform? And if so, like, do they find the the providers or do yeah, like, how, how does that I mean, can you walk me through that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I guess the short answer to that is yes. Uh, we, we are an amalgamator, uh, but obviously we are, we are a managed marketplace, right? So, um, we have a concierge and, uh, we have, we have like a software to help with the relocation management process, right? So it, so it's really at your fingertips. We have about maybe today 2,300 partners globally. Uh, but it's not enough because like in America, for example, just certain states, we have like maybe three to five partners, right? Yeah. And, uh, we do tend to work with like our more trust. We do have VIP partners, right? And, you know, whereby I realize the working relationship is good. So, uh, yeah, we do. Uh, SKUs-wise, I think today, like I'm just uh, checking with my colleagues, like probably 10,000 plus SKUs. Wow. Uh, 
Yeah, but if you talk about maybe active partners, my guess is maybe like low hundreds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the idea would be it's like a full service. I go onto the platform, and uh, the different the different individual facets of moving, uh, relocating, I can fulfill through yeah. through the platform. And then, of course, I'm I'm assuming there's like tracking mechanism, a dashboard, like something like like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's cool. How do you think the landscape is changing with, as you were mentioning sort of briefly, now there's digital nomads and there's mm-hmm. a work from anywhere policy, you know, is that something mm-hmm. that you guys have been thinking about or are looking forward to? Or is that now this sort of next step of mobility? And, you know, we don't know what that future is going to look like. Yeah. Uh, so maybe like like two parts. So I think like migration has, you know, ha- has existed since the dawn of mankind. So, like, you know, people move seeking a better life, right? That will not change. So, yeah, like, I, I don't know, like, but flows change, right? Uh, where are you moving from? Where are you moving to and why? Right? So, I think what we're looking at is, like, maybe the pandemic is one reason why, right? A new reason why. So, that affects the way people move. Um, like, work from home or, you know, like, em- uh, embracement of, like, uh, like dish, uh, kind of, like, remote working, right? That's going to drive, like, movement in a different way. So, yeah, um, yeah, it's it's not. I I don't think this is a unique event, right? But it's an event, nevertheless, right? So I, I think I'll maybe the, the team and I our job is to figure out like yeah like um how are people how does this therefore change consumption habits right and how do we make sure that you know we can best serve needs uh? the needs are changing but but we are nimble right we are a startup right so if anything yeah. we are good at we are, we are fast right yeah. so figure things out so yeah um, and this is unlikely to be the last change. Uh, in fact, like I know, the Ukraine war has resulted in like net migration westwards, Estonia, Lithuania, right? And you know, and that's an event, right? So yeah, so you know, maybe for us, uh, we're not exactly strong in, in in that side of the world, but uh, that is an event uh, closer to home. Sri Lanka currently has like a currency crisis, right? And they are experiencing like brain drain. So very good engineers like leaving the country because you know, economically speaking, the opportunity is elsewhere, right? So uh, identifying that and figuring out how do we wrap our service offerings around that market uh, as an origin and whichever markets as a destination. Right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so it is a continuous process. Uh, I think maybe one other big shift that we've seen a little bit more pronounced would be HR policy changes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you look at maybe the large RMCs like Server and DGRS, uh, they they are specialized in servicing uh, certain kinds of clients in a very white glove way, right? But then there's everyone else. And I, I think what's happening in the market is that group of everyone else is growing at a growing rate, right? So you're going to need new solutions. Right? Kind of like Airbnb, right? Nothing wrong with Hilton, right? It's just that there's a new market that's like like merging and new needs. So yeah, I think that's kind of how we, we, we look at the market. So it's like servicing the, let's just call them SMBs, small and medium-sized businesses from the relocation space is a, it's a growing segment. And it's not that you're taking away from the other pie. I think it sounds like the pie is just getting bigger. Yeah. Yeah. The needs are changing and it it might not even be an SMB. Um, You know, some large, large, some MNCs, um, some some large corporations don't really have an international assignment policy, Mm. right? Or uh, and you know, some small companies are extremely remote, Mm. right? So it's really need spaces. But I think ultimately is uh, how do we create like uh, product flows 
for this group of people, right? You can have like millionaires that honestly would rather stay in an Airbnb. Right. Right. So yeah, I, I do think it's packed to like maybe like uh, consumption habits and user flows. That's really interesting. I was going to ask you, you know, you guys, uh, it was in the news, you raised a, a, a Series A uh, round, mm-hmm. I think $7 million in April of 2020. Yeah. So right as the pandemic really shut the world down, Um, and kind of really put movement to a halt. Obviously, there were still people moving in many exceptions. And and, uh, through that, remote work has changed the policies and brought about what what is today. But I'm just curious from from you as somebody who came from the VC world, you know, I know that fundraising takes some time, it could take one month or six months, but there was a lead up to it. And it's like you closed around, you finally announce it, and then boom, the world shuts down. You know, you as a leader, how did you navigate that? Like, and maybe how do you continue to navigate that now? Because the world is open, but it's still kind of iffy. Right. So, um, so communications with maybe, um, we have a very, very good Series A investor uh, in, in Quest Ventures. Uh, Quest Ventures, they are operator led. So these are guys that, you know, they, they used to run their own startup, but now they're VCs, right? So uh, I, I think there is maybe like uh, alignment as a, kind of like startup founder to startup founder, right? That there are things that are external and there are things that are internal that you can control, right? Uh, so uh, the deal went through, but uh, my commitment to like uh, like our investors and our stakeholders, right, was that um, what I'm going to do, right, is like the spending plan has to change, right? Because we're going to need time for one, like uh, the pandemic to stabilize, right? And uh, two, for us to figure this out, right? Um, I'm an entrepreneur. Like I, I would say that I'm optimistic, but uh, I, I tend to look for the silver lining. But uh, I I demand of myself that I substantiate that optimism, right? Uh, you know, the opposite of that would be just you know, like I don't know what you call it, like uh, confident ignorance is right. is dangerous, right? So yeah, so um, the pandemic, if anything, is the great equalizer, right? In fact, it probably hits the large companies harder. So uh, things will change, right? Uh, now, you know, the ad- added layer of complexity is COVID, right? And so, yeah, and, and we are a startup, right? So the, my question is that like, given that, you know, like the entire boat has been rocked, right? And there are all these cracks that are like, like servicing, where is the opportunity? What should I be building, right? So, uh, yeah, but it, it's going to take time to figure that out. And it takes time for like there are things to stabilize so that we know that this need is not like, it's not a passing fad, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like the future. Is it going to look like that, or some semblance of this? So yeah, I, I think with that confidence, uh, yeah, we closed the round, uh, and it did put a little bit of like a dampener on our initial growth plans. But you know, hey, like I, I do believe we have a very, very good team. Uh, we are still in the midst of like you know stabilizing and figuring out what like a very strong value proposition would look like, mm-hmm. right? Uh, yeah, to like our partners. Uh, so. Uh, so I, I think like a maybe like I, I don't know are we still in the pandemic I I don't know what the technical like uh, definition of it is anymore it's <laughs> endemic maybe I I don't know it's but, a good question I mean it's a good question there's obviously in person events are coming back offices are opening back up um, but it it is it, it will be interesting to see how to your point HR policies change because clearly listen I was at a conference a few uh, weeks ago and there were some large companies that are like we're everyone's coming back to the office there's no remote work 
Other right. companies said, well, you know, we're bringing back people uh, two to three days a week because we want to have in-person collaboration, but we're allowing people to work from home, let's say Monday, Friday, or whatever they want. And then other companies, as you mentioned, uh, some of whom are startups, but famously now Airbnb just announced that they're letting everyone work remotely. Some com- other companies, big and small, are saying, hey, you go work wherever you want. Um, I think the Airbnb policy was up to 90 days in another any other yeah. part of the world. Um, yeah. And maybe that's just their control, you know, uh, uh, to, to just not let people go wild and, you know, live at the top of the mountain for the next year and a half. Um, yeah. But, you know, I, it still shows that there's going to be some shift. And right now it feels that some companies are defaulting to what they know because it's easier. They just want to get back to work. And other companies are taking this as an opportunity to, put effort and energy into their policies. Um, right. So, it, it, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's cool in a way. I mean, again, the, the pandemic COVID has been off. I mean, I don't want to make it sound like this is just some business experience. This was people, many, many, many people died, got sick, you know, lost loved ones. And so it's not to make light of this at all. Uh, but to your point, it's an event that happened and society has to move forward. And how do we look at what we have in front of us and mm-hmm. build companies and policies and things uh, to account for that. Um, so yeah, really interesting. And I think it's, you know, it's cool to see you in terms of as a leader, what I took away from from what you just shared was, number one, the need of a really good partner, uh, yeah. if it's an investor, or if it's clients, or, you know, your, your partner companies, they have to, if they're on the platform, they have to feel confident that the platform is going to continue to exist, if not thrive. Um, So the number one, you know, it's connecting with or having right people on your side. And then, of course, number two, really great kind of open and honest communication with them to make sure that everyone's aligned and on the same page. And 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 then I think number three, what I took away from you is, you know, substantiating your the dream scenario. Right. Which I think is important because many people just have a vision and they put that vision out there, but they can't back it up with data number one or number two they don't do what they need to do to make that vision sort of right. become a reality i'm um, actually like uh, just like an add-on like uh, the team and i have put together like a hundred page human mobility report and this was like for yeah and uh yeah so uh, we put a lot of effort into it but it does show right what has happened from the pandemic right because uh, if you look in asia like we, we do have previous pandemics we have data from h1n1 in Hong Kong or closer to home in Asia, we had SARS, right? So, you know, what was the impact in the short term? What is the impact in a five-year, like, you know, like, like time frame, 10-year time frame? Uh, yeah, so it helps us to maybe, like, use past data to better understand uh, the current pandemic, right? And maybe, like, for a business, like, try to make, like, an educated guess on what, uh, like, for your own company, the strategy might be for the next two years, right, given this data. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be sharing the human mobility uh, white paper nice. with everyone. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, everyone with the data, you guys can figure out your strategy, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, maybe in a, I think probably in a month. That's awesome. Well, thank you for that. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to reading it. So, you know, Junxian, I I appreciate you. Of course, this has been such an interesting. Uh, and insightful conversation. And I think your journey has been really cool. You know, we don't have a lot of, as, as far as people I've spoken to on the show and, and otherwise, not too many people who get into this industry with prior VC background. Uh, but I think it's it's an important caveat because there is more outside capital coming into this industry because guess what? People are waking up to the fact that technology is 
starting to penetrate the immigration and global mobility space, there's a lot of opportunity and not all that much competition yet, right? There's not a lot of legacy. There's, there's just a lot of nothing. And I think it's important to know what the motivations are of outside capital and also important to understand the knowledge gap. You know, like if I'm building, if I'm pitching a VC, uh, a VC if I'm pitching them an immigration company, I have to paint a certain picture that they will understand unless maybe they are immigration lawyers themselves, you know? And so I think this balancing act is really interesting. So it's cool to, that you're sort of part of this. Uh, part of this uh, industry and also have that that background. I, I do. I like to end with a sort of maybe lighter question because you know we've we've now had a whole hour long uh, kind of this really great and deep discussion. Very often, the folks who are on this show have lived in many parts of the world, you know, especially for an extended period of time. So you lived in Boston. You've also you know in in and you've in DC. You lived in the U.S. Uh, you've lived in China and you've traveled around the world. You know. I always wonder which of these types of questions to ask, but my, I guess I love food. And so maybe my, my question that I should probably always lean on is where do you remember having your most memorable meal? And by the way, that can be the side of a dirty road eating, a, you know, something off a truck, or it could be, you know, double Michelin star restaurant, but like, you know, you've been all over the world. What are, what's kind of the most memorable meal that comes to mind? So like, a, it's actually in Singapore. And, uh, yeah, and it's, uh, so in Singapore, we have like a, it's a different conversation, but it's a long conversation, but Singapore, we have like a hawker system. The so stalls, it's kind of like right? Hawker stalls. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, actually like I, 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 there's no specific moment, but, um, for Singaporeans, we wrap our day around food. So let's say Roman and I, right, we're going to hang, right? So like, uh, maybe in America, it will be like, Hey, we're going to this event. And we just eat whatever, right, around the area. But uh, in Singapore, our life is wrapped around food. So it's like, hey, we're going to eat at this store and then we'll do whatever, <laughs> right? So, uh-huh. yeah. So uh, when I was, uh, maybe like when I was traveling around, actually, and I, I, I'm pretty sure most Singaporeans are like me, we, at the back of our head, we really yearn to come back home to eat at that hawker store. And it's not because it's like really good. It's because it it's like home. Yeah. So it'd be that specific store selling like, I don't know, man, like chicken rice that you just really want to go there to eat it. And it's, it's very Singaporean because like, yeah, once again, our, 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 a lot of our, our personal lives are wrapped around and our events are wrapped around food. Wow. I need to go to Singapore because that's how I wrap my, I, every day is centered around food Foods. every, you know, so <laughs> Uh, that's, that's, that's amazing. You know, I, I, I think about some of these moments that I've had in my life. One of my most favorite was I was in South Korea at a, just, you know, just walking around one night and went to like a food court type of thing. And I, I ordered this soup. I didn't know what it was. And it was very red. Like it was a deep red, meaning there was very, very hot peppers and, and yeah, it's very spicy. And so I started eating it and, uh, you know, it was absolutely delicious. And my spice tolerance is pretty good. Uh, but it was, I mean, visibly, I was sweating and my face was hot and I kept on walking. There was like a little water cooler. So I kept on walking and refilling a cup of water and drinking it, going back to my table, eating the soup. And I was by myself. Um, and I remember, I'll never forget the one of the women who, who worked there. You know, her English wasn't great, but she basically came up to me. She was like, you know, you don't look like you're okay. Do you want me to give you another type of soup? You know? <laughs> 
<laughs> and I was, and, and I, I'll never forget that moment because my instinct was like, no, I'm going to finish this soup. I didn't, I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to back down. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, like I, I totally understand you, this, this concept of a very kind of uh, homey, you know, an environment that feels the fact that she came up to me, it means that she noticed she cared, you right. know, and, and I love that. Like that, that was more important to me than the soup itself. Um, obviously it's a different country, but I think that concept, the concept or the context around eating is, is really important. So you're making me miss travel and miss like these kind of food stalls. So uh, I hope to come to Singapore one day. And, and when I do, I will definitely ask you at least for some recommendations on, on where to go to eat. So this is great, uh, Jinxian. Thank you so much. Again, I know it's really late for you. So appreciate you staying up. I know uh, hopefully you get some rest thinking about all this stuff. And, and thank you so much for being here. I'm really excited to continue to watch the growth of MoveOz. People can, it's moveaz.com, M-O-O-V-A-Z.com for folks to go check it out. And obviously folks should connect with you and on LinkedIn and, and elsewhere to keep in touch. And I'll have all that information in the description of, of this episode. So yeah, thank you again. I really appreciate it. This is really awesome. Thank you. Thank you.